If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In military history, we often hear the stories of great battles and detailed strategic manoeuvres. But what was life like for the men who actually had to execute these orders on the front line? Through his work with the Imperial War Museum's Sound Archive, military historian Peter Hart has conducted many interviews with those with direct experience of frontline fighting, recalling some of the most nerve-wracking moments of their lives. Drawing on these accounts, his book Burning Steel charts the experiences of the 2nd Fife and Forfa Yeomanry, a tank regiment that faced horrific scenes during the Second World War. Emily Griffith spoke to him to find out more. And please be aware that this conversation includes graphic descriptions of injury and death. Hello, Peter. It's an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Hello. Nice to see you again, Emily. Your book, Burning Steel, looks at the stories from veterans from the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yeomanry regiments during the Second World War, from the testimonies of tank commanders to wireless operators and gunners to NCOs to lorry drivers, storemen and many more. So I think the best place to start is by asking you what actually was the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yeomanry regiments? Well, they were a territorial regiment, which is somebody, what they used to call a Saturday night soldier, who used to just do, I say, one day a week training and then perhaps go to summer camp, that kind of thing. That was the first Fife and Forfire at Yeoman, really. But as the war grew near and after the Munich crisis, it was all doubled up. And the doubling up meant the creation of the second Fife and Forfire Yeomanry. And originally, they were meant to be uh, a sort of reconnaissance regiment, like the first. And they had little tin pot tanky things that went quite quick and not very good. But then it was decided to make them an armoured regiment, i.e. a tank regiment. And they were equipped with a series of tanks, Churchills, Cromwells, and then ultimately the Sherman, which a lot of people might have heard of. And then the, the Comet, that was their final tank, which a lot of people won't have heard of, including me before I did this. And there, as the name suggests strongly, a Scottish regiment. Very, very proud of their time. They're based around Fife and Forfar, of course. I'd say the Heartlands, if you like, Dundee. Cooper, Dunfermline, Cuddy. I can't say these things properly either. They really try. In fact, I say Forfar wrong. Cuddy. And that's the basic area where they come from. But, and that's the interesting thing for us and why the War Museum cheated, because this was a War Museum project the book's based on. They also had as a lot of regiments did, they were watered down because after the First World War, they didn't want everybody to be from the same area in a unit because if they were smashed up, like on the first day of the Somme, then it was a tragedy in the town and it created such an impact. So what they did was that they tried to water units down and a lot of English people came to the unit. But uh, we ended up with half and half, half Scottish, half English and even a few Welsh people so it was a wonderful project to be involved with and they they were a wonderful unit they're just lovely to know (laughs) so what were the men like what were some of your initial observations upon meeting them 
Well, I'd done all the First World War ones before, and I'd done all the DLI and South and so So they were much the same. They were older because they were the last to be picked. So they are pushing on. They're in their 80s. They were so welcoming, and they were so wanted to tell their story. You know, you'd go to their house, you'd drink a cup of tea with them. Well, not tea, I hate tea. It's sort of brown, muddy stuff that I can't stand. But drink a cup of coffee with them. You know, you'd admire their garden. You'd chat to them, chat to the, the wife, who, after all, actually has a big part. I mean, they're the ones who have to live while they're away, some of them. You'd sit there, and you've got all these... Th- it's, it, I used to always say... you'd different types of armchair and from comfortable and the ones that creak they were the ones that really caused trouble so you have to keep still the other thing is they're all different types so you get jolly jokey types which i would define me as not always but mostly then you've got serious people you've got uh, religious types you've got sweary types <laughs> i i think two of them were mps so there's all types that were minors, people long-distance lorry drivers. There was all sorts, and they all tried their best. And so, so for some people, they're better. they've got a photographic memory, which I haven't, but they could just tell you anything, they just anything. And they remembered almost day to day. And you have other people who just perhaps remembered one or two things, and they're short interview. But do you know what? We at the War Museum used to value them all for the contribution they made to the big picture. And that's the point. You cover it all through people. And I love the fact that you get different people talking about the same incident. So the same tank, in some cases, three or four members of the same tank crew, and when it's hit by a shell or something, the different reactions of everybody, the driver climbing out and the commander coming out and and other people, and, and sadly, sometimes the person who doesn't get out. And you get lots of people reacting to the same thing. And also lots of people reacting to the same officers. Some people say, I hated him, hated him. And other people say, great, fantastic officer. Then you get the officer himself say, the men all loved me. (laughs) Some of them were more aware than that, obviously. But you have a range of things. And it's all about the same people, the same instance. You can track them through. It's a wonderful experience. Is it all true? I don't know. But what we went for by is balance of probability. Why would they lie? Does it fit with the war diary? Does it fit with the other accounts? And that's how I, you go about it. Why do you think it's so important to share some of these stories then? Because if you don't share experiences of war, then you end up with more wars. You end up with this idea that war is fun or war can be sanitised. That's a very common view, is that you can sanitise war. Somehow it's fought by a small regular army away and everybody else isn't involved. And not many people are, you know, hurt or killed. And I think the more we have of people talking about what it was really like, that brings it home to people. And you don't start thinking that war is fun or war is a reasonable solution. And, I mean, that might be betraying... I think this probably says more about me than it does about the War Museum's idea. So I'll be honest with that. To the War Museum, it's just that their story should be told. And the War Museum has a brief to tell people's stories. So there you go. There's the my position and the official position. I think one of the things you talk about in the start of your book is about capturing these stories as well before we lose them. Yeah. We have lost them, in one sense, because anyone we did an interview is gone. I think there are only two of them are left alive, of the 50-odd we did, and only one I know, Jeff Hayward, a wonderful old boy, lives in Poole. 
And he's he's still hale and hearty, but he's 99, I think. He is 99, in fact. Or is he 100? It's a year later. But the others are all dead. And if they're not caught... I mean, I did the interviews 20 years ago. And in that 20 years, three score years and 10 is not really accurate unless you're working in heavy industry. I hope it isn't anyway, because I'm 68. But the, the thing is that you can't leave it. It's too late now for Second World War interviewing. Those memories are missed. We should now, and people are, collecting memories of people who fought in the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War, Aden in the 1960s, Afghanistan, of course. That's what's important now. But that doesn't negate the importance of what we did all those years ago, 20 years ago. It has to be done. <laughs> and it was. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So I'd like to dive into some of these men's stories. But I think an important question just to cover quickly is why were tanks so important during the second world war it was their brief golden period wasn't it i mean they're not that important now because they're too vulnerable they always have been vulnerable to artillery of all sorts but in the second world war technology was at a state where the tank had a hitting power it had a machine gun it could do damage it could do damage to opposing tanks but most of all it could act as a spearhead. They had to have infantry nearby, because if they hadn't got infantry nearby, they'd be ambushed, cut off and done for. But as long as they worked together with infantry, and that wasn't understood until deep into 44, then they could provide a mailed fist, I think was the usual thing, and they could punch through, and then they had the speed, because uh, all the backup equipment is motorised, although the British Army was motorised, in contrast to the German Army, which still relied a, a lot on horses. But already, the writing's on the wall, in the sense that uh, the German Air Force had already been beaten and wasn't there. I mean, if we met certain types of tank, they just called up a typhoon or a, or a Spitfire or something to deal with it. But that the, the Second World War is the golden period of the tank, and it was very important at that period. Alongside the artillery, which just smashed everything, and the infantry, who in the end had to put the boots on the ground to occupy the ground, because tanks are helpless without infantry to take over and to protect them. Was being in a tank regiment maybe seen as more or less desirable than being part of the infantry or artillery? By the people in the tanks, yes. Not by the people in the infantry and the artillery, no. The people in tanks are proud of their role, proud of the Royal Armoured Corps, which they're a part of, proud of their tanks, proud of their unit, proud British Army, proud of everything, if you know what I mean. Infantry, I mean, some they didn't mind a lift, from a tank. Some wouldn't get in one. Even when they were wounded, they wouldn't get in a tank. They regarded it as being trapped in basically a, something that could catch fire and explode at any moment. And they preferred to take their chances in a hole in the ground. And that, that this is a very strong perception amongst infantry. So the infantry like the mobility and they, they used to love getting a lift. And towards the end of the war, there'd be six, ten of them on the back of a tank as they trundled into Germany. But if things started firing, they tended to get away from it. 
the Royal Artillery is supremely proud of being Royal Artillery. The Infantry Regiments are proud. The Durham Light Infantry are proud of being Durham's. Everybody else is useless. And the Fife and Forfar thought everybody else was useless as well. It's just the way of the British Army. It's all based around competition. And then, of course, there's the Germans. <laughs> so let's go on to the story of the Second Fife and Forfar. Yeah. How did the war start for them? Were they prepared for it? No. Most of them had only just joined up in around between April. I mean, the, the TA mob, because they'd been called up when the, the second was formed. You see, if you'd volunteered for the TA, you didn't have to be called up. If you were called up, you were in the infantry. If you volunteered, you could pick a unit to some extent. And so people were very keen to volunteer for the uh, a mobile unit. Like They weren't ready. They spent, my maths is terrible, from 1939 to 1944 training. They trained on the Mark VI tank, first of all. Then they went down south. They trained around Salisbury Plain, and then they were sent to Ireland. I don't know why, in case the Germans attacked through Southern Ireland. And then they came back to England, and they, they went to the north of England. They trained there, and then they moved there. They moved here, there, and everywhere. Training, training, different tanks, Cromwell, Churchill, and finally the Sherman. Train, train, train. And the, the lads were getting absolutely bored of the training. And the officers in the regimental history always says the lads were dying to get into action. They just wanted to get, they were hoping to get, you know, 1942, we're going to get sent to North Africa. Hooray! And then you, you listen to the lads and they go, well, we're bored of training, but, you know, it's probably better than being sent to North Africa. <laughs> It's much more realistic viewpoint. On the other hand, different people, I know of at least two who thought this is, I'm fed up of this, and went off to join other units that were being posted overseas. They, they just had enough of training. Training, 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 right up to 1944, when they don't go across on D-Day, they go across the next month, and then they're in Normandy, and then it starts for them. So all that training, they'd all learned, so every man in the tank had learned more than one job, so they could you know, if someone was wounded, they could do different things. And they had to do this. But it just took so long. And then when they get to France, I perhaps got a couple of examples for you. The battles were so huge. They're just... The first thing they're really in is a thing called Operation Epsom. They're attacking towards a village called Schur in Normandy. And it happens on the 26th of June, 1944. Now, the person who told me the story that I most remember, and I'm going to use for the examples I tell you, there was a chap called Lieutenant Charlie Workman. He was in the C squadron. There's three squadrons in the in the regiment. And he was a fantastic old boy. You know, I think he finished up a brigadier or a colonel. It's, it's like a charge of the light brigade almost. They're, they're, they're sent forward, these Shermans, trundling into action, attacking strong German positions around Schur. And Lieutenant Charlie Workman says this. The wireless traffic was going like mad. There was an 88 millimeter at, at so-and-so. That's a, a very powerful German gun. There was something else at so-and-so. For the first time in my life, I saw German troops advancing towards us. They would be Panzer Grenadiers, part of the 12th SS Panzer Division. This was quite a strong defensive line, and we'd hit it. We put the machine gun onto them. We were told the Germans never led with officers. They regarded that as a waste. You could see who the officer was because people were looking at him. You had to try and kill the officers. Then their tanks opened up. We couldn't see them at all. They were hulled down. Sure itself was a shambles. The whole village was ruined. It was difficult to tell where the road was. We kept losing tanks. <laughs> hey, we lost seven that day in C Squadron. I could see them being hit. There would suddenly be a flash and a tank on your left or your right would 
go up. You saw the flames as they brewed up, and you thought that was just what happened. It was only later you began to realise that these Shermans, that's the tank he was in, were brewers. I'll come back to that. We were firing. Now and again, you'd see a German tank moving, and you would engage that tank. It was such a confusion. It was our first day in action. There was burning tanks, wounded men, constant shells going off all round you. It was pretty noisy. We couldn't get any further forward. Such a confused scene. One was never aware of being afraid. I think that was because we had so much to do. And he was a tank commander. And I think that's a fabulous explanation of what it's just a confusion of it all and of course this is their first time in action was this a common initial impression of action from among those you spoke to yes very much so and remember he's the commander so he can see more than the others can a lot of them are looking through just uh, periscopes or, or, or visor things sergeant in command of the tank tended to be above the waist out of the tank looking round. So he at least had some chance of seeing. Inside the... We, I mean, the drivers, I don't know. Go left. So, you know, the gunners would see the target they're aiming at, that kind of thing. But, yeah, the confusion. I mean, some of them were frightened. Charlie Workman wasn't. But as he said, he was so busy. He's got the wireless on. He's talking. So it's like me talking to you and at the same time looking around for Germans, uh, directing the driver, directing the, the gun layer, wh where to aim. Uh, and it's all happening. And if you make a mistake... You could be dead seconds later. I've got another quote from him after that battle. He meets a chap called Lieutenant Steele Brownlee to talk it over. Now, I like this because Steele Brownlee left an account called Now Came Safe Home, which is in the War Museum. But he died before we could interview him, which is sad. Charlie Workman's talking about this, and he, he has a chat with Steele Brownlee. It was always called Steele. It's William Steele Brownlee, but it was always called Steele Brownlee. And Workman says this, We discussed what the life expectancy of a troop leader was. We could see it wasn't very long. We were all young, I suppose more malleable. I don't think anybody minded being killed. It was how you were killed. The thing I always had was I didn't want to lose my eyes. I could accept losing an arm or a leg, and we saw plenty of that. The German had its ammunition exposed in the top. That means the top bit of the, the turret. There was no lid on the bin. So when a Sherman was hit, it blew up. And very often the tank commander had his legs blown away. That's what happened to Chris Nichols. That's Major Chris Nichols. Exactly like that. I saw his tank was brewed up. I saw him try to get out and then he fell back in again. And that was it. In action, one never had any fear. A tank commander was too busy. You were watching your map, looking at your own troop. You were talking to your own driver. Go slow, turn left, stop. You were telling your gunner, traverse left, traverse right, pick up the target. Your wireless operator would be giving you instructions. You were so busy. But the worst of it was when you came out and you're looking around to see who was still there, what friends you had left. Then you'd be told who'd gone. That was the worst bit afterwards. And, of course, this is like your work colleagues that you work work with every day and you've been with them say two years or a year or six months and then the next day they're dead or gone wounded dead and next day they had to go into action again it's tremendously uh i don't know is it inspiring but it's 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 certainly i've got admiration for them because i certainly bloody couldn't do it could you not so it's how you deal with the horrors of that you can't almost fathom it 
Well, I've got another one, and this one is uh, gratuitously horrible, but I actually want our, our listeners to, to understand what this is like. This is Charlie Werman. Now, he never told me when this was. He dropped this story in, but he didn't make it specific when it was, and he specifically didn't say who the individual concerned was because of the family, and you'll see why. This is what Charlie Workman said. We were advancing through a cornfield. There was a bang, and I was brewed up. The tank wasn't on fire, but I was literally blown out of my tank. I came to on the ground. I was quite uninjured. The sun was shining, the cornfield all around. There was a sack lying beside me. Then this sack of stuff started screaming at me. Shoot me! Shoot me! Sir, shoot me! I've been a good soldier. Please, I can't stand this agony. Please, 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 shoot me! This was my driver, who'd been very badly burned up. I took out my revolver, and I couldn't find a face. I couldn't find anything. There was nothing left of him except a voice. I was prepared to shoot him. In the end, luckily, the voice died away, and he died. Now, I remember sitting opposite him thinking, I can't understand how you can get away with that. And a sack lying beside me. And it's just, it is just a phrase. It's just a few words. But what horror for me, those, I mean, imagine it for him. But for me, I thought that just those three little words or four little words. And you think, God, oh, gee. And the horror of that driver's terrible death never left him. And you also see why he didn't want the relatives to know who it was. Because he will have written home saying he was shot through the head, died. He was never in pain because that's what they always wrote home. They always said that they died instantly and didn't suffer. Because that, why would you want, why would you want the mother or the father, the, the sisters, and occasionally, because they were young, 19 to 23, most of them, why would you want them to be upset? So you just told them they'd been killed. Did the men's mentality change to situations like this over the course of the war? Yes. Gradually, their attitude changes from being fairly gung-ho but nervous they were always nervous, most of them, to being very aware that if a Sherman was hit, it would catch fire. They used to call them uh, Tommy Cookers, and they also called them Ronson, the uh, cigarette lighter. I don't smoke, but they always light first time. So if you're going into action in a tank that you know if you're hit will catch fire and you might be burnt to death. It does mean that it, it's a very tense and hair-raising business for people. And gradually, there's no doubt about it, people became more nervous. Some people broke down. Uh, and in the Second World War, remember, they'd just be taken out of the unit and put on other jobs. Uh, there's a couple of the lads I interviewed who came out of tanks and went on to driving duties. The driving duties, you could still get yourself killed, but it was a sensible handling of things other than court-martialing you, which was the First World War way. They still wouldn't kill them, most of them wouldn't shoot them. In, in the First World War, there was only one in ten of those convicted were shot. But they dealt with it a lot better in the Second World War. But it, you could just imagine, as you go into action, and yeah, you don't go into action that many times, but you see, Operation Epsom, uh, end of June, is followed by Operation Goodwood, 18th of July, which is followed by, next month, Operation Bluecoat, which is followed by a massive rapid advance right through. Then there's really bad fighting for a while in Belgium and really horrible fighting through Holland. And then they move into Germany, more fighting. And... People gradually get more and more nervous. They, they used to say in the First World War that it was like a well, your well of courage. And if you took too much water out of it, you'd run out of courage. And gradually you get more and more nervous, more and more edgy, more and more 
cautious. But most of them carry on. As Still Brownie always led from the front. He seems to have been all right right to the end. Uh, other people definitely became just edgy. And who can blame them? I think in your book you talk about a particular moment with Operation Goodwood in particular being a real hell-on-earth moment. Yeah, well, there's a quote from Trooper Harold Wilson. The name always made me laugh a bit. And he's one of the two that was still alive last year. But Harold Wilson said this, all of a sudden hell broke loose and that's the joke in action. They always say all hell broke loose every time. There was everything firing. We dodged along, firing here, firing there, moving along. You'd see a tank go up, but you kept going. We'd stopped and been firing and suddenly a command comes. We've been hit, bail out. I made a dive out. When I got out, there was a gunner and the crew commander out but no operator if he'd hit the turret and went in it was usually bound to be fatal one way or another there wasn't that much room when one of them shells came through and buzzed around in it and a modern tank they turns you to soup uh, that's what the modern shells do they're called hesh shells and uh, this I'll, I'll do a quote from trooper james donovan same action this is operation goodwill the the five four five yeomanry i think they have 55 tanks knocked out out of about 70 or whatever they've got. And yes, I can't remember the number. And this is uh, Trooper James Donovan. This is a hair-raising exchange. James Donovan says this. Looking through the periscope, I saw two tanks moving up behind the hedge facing us. You could just see the tops of the turrets. I said on the intercom to the crew commander, there's a tank on the left. One of the crew commanders was actually combing his hair. This is one of the Germans. Uh, he was so unconcerned. I don't think he'd seen us. I can picture him now. He, he had blonde hair. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> He picked a field hat up and put it on, and I realised they were German tanks and not ours. They were Panthers. We started to reverse, and the crew commander brought the gun round onto them. They'd seen us by then. The first one came crashing through the hedge in front of us, 40 to 50 yards away. As he came through the hedge, our gunner fired, and it hit him. We saw the tracer from our shell come off the front and just zoom up into the air. It bounced off. That happened a lot. Their shells would penetrate a Panther. As our driver was reversing, you could see the gunner there tank come round and you can just imagine the gun coming round to point at them and woof it came through the front somewhere there was a hell of a noise you don't know what it is it all happens within seconds the next thing we heard was bail out i was in the co-driver's seat i turned round and kicked the release on the escape hatch in the floor behind me my thoughts were if we go out through the front they'll just shoot us down i kicked the lever over and the escape hatch dropped and dave sutherland and myself went through and the others came out of the turret as we crawled back boiling water was coming down it must have gone through the radiator all five of us got out and we got to the back of the tank there is a, a way out into the bottom but if it's in soft ground you can't get out of it because it's sunk down and then you have to go out through the top and then there's a i like this as a moment of humor and james donovan says officers used to get issued with a bottle of whiskey every now and again and lieutenant black had a bottle he used to share with his crew the radiator got onto the back of the tank when he came out the turret and he's leaning back into the tank as it started to catch fire trying to retrieve the bottle of whiskey and that's a british soldier for you <laughs> do anything to get a drink it could have blown up at any time that seems completely crazy. What does things like this tell us about the camaraderie, the relationships and the kind of morale amongst the regiment? What does come across is, yes, some people disliked each other. So it, that's always the case in any group of people. But the point is that, that most of them got on extremely well. And the feeling of camaraderie is what 
comes across now. And they form these regimental associations later on. Now, they were part of the 11th Armoured Division as a whole. They had the best reputation collectively, this division of any armoured division. But they had 10,000 casualties and over 2,000 dead. And one of the things that the men often talked about was people being dead long before their time. And what they mean by that is their mate... Now, at the time, they all presumed they could be dead any time. So if, if you weren't killed on Tuesday, you'd probably get killed on Friday. So it really didn't matter much when you were killed. But if you survive, of course, and you're being interviewed 60 years later, you realise that your best mate who was killed in 1944 in July at, say, Goodwood, he's missed 60 years of life. And they often talked about that. And I often feel that men like these used to be all around us. They really did. If you went to the shop, and that's, you know, when I was a kid, everybody had been in the Second World War. But the point is that they were all around us, and now they're not. But all the way through their lives, they maintained their links together. They formed regimental associations, and they wouldn't talk about it to their families or to people, because the families, uh, we call it Uncle Albert's syndrome. The, the families get bored. Uh, Uncle Albert's from that situation comedy that I can't remember the name of. But, you know, oh, Uncle Albert, leave off. Stop telling us the same bloody stories. And so they stop. Or why would you tell your children a story about someone being like a sack on the floor and burning to death? Why would you tell your children or your wife that? You're just not going to. What they would do, though, is when they went to the uh, the British Legion or the Regimental Association annual meetings or the, or the monthly meetings some of them had, you could talk to each other. But a lot of the time they didn't talk about that still. What they talked about was their old mates and the comradeship. And they relived the jokes. Sometimes they relived the fighting. Sometimes some favourite story would be told and there's one bloke who who had kept a notch of everything and he, he'd knocked out tanks he'd knocked out a self-propelled gun and then he, he fired at an airfield and knocked out an airplane and then as they're coming into uh, one of the harbors uh, uh, in germany he fired a shot across the bows of a ship but that's the sort of thing they would say and that comradeship is very real it's not special to the five and four fire yeomanry but it's typical of that generation who went through a war and i still think it may be naive, but I still think they fought that war for us. I wasn't born till 1955, but in a way, that that's what they're, they're fighting for, our future of their families and their country. Did they do wrong things? Yes. Was it a terrible war? Yes. But in the end, I think they, they were a remarkable group of men. There's one little quote from William Steele Brownie I got out of the book. Because these ordinary men, extraordinary deeds but in a good cause. But this little quote I found strangely sad. He said, Out of all the mishmash of memories, I have one that is vivid when I walk the dog of an evening. If the wind is blowing quietly through the trees and everything else is still, I physically feel what it was like to be in a field in Normandy at the end of a day. Not mentally, just physically. It's a strange feeling. And it never left them. Never left them. Well, I think we shouldn't forget them. And I hope my book plays a small part... It is mostly their own work, <laughs> if you see what I mean. They did most of the work. But I, I hope it helps commemorate that generation and, of course, particularly the five and four for Yemenry. If only I could say it right. That was Peter Hart. Peter worked as an oral historian at the Imperial War Museum and is the author of military history books on the First and Second World Wars. Burning Steel, A Tank Regiment at War, 1939-45, is out now published by Profile Books.
Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.